1 Samuel chapter 8, if you'll join me there. God at this time historically has been using Samuel who has clearly been a strong spiritual leader among the nation of Israel. God's raised him up from childhood, sort of set him apart. Uh, He was actually prayed for uh, in advance, actually in answer to God's prayer. God needed a a prophet for the nation at this time historically and, and Samuel has been a godly man, a strong spiritual leader to come and shepherd the people. He loved the Lord. Uh, He was a man who listened to the Lord specifically, which was very important because God wanted to use him to to lead the people, to lead the people back to the Lord and relationship and to continue to lead them into the things of God. There was a need of spiritual renewal and revival. And because this man loved the Lord himself and listened to the Lord, he was the perfect individual for God to sanctify and set apart to be used in this way. And we saw in chapter 7, really, this spiritual renewal, somewhat of a revival that God brought among the people. And uh, as we ended chapter 7, we read of Samuel's life there in verse 15 through 17 the last few verses that Samuel then went on to judge all of Israel throughout the days of his life it says and that he actually would year by year sort of go on a circuit that he would travel around about a 50 mile or so uh, distance is described there in chapter 7 verse uh, 16 of going from Bethel to then Gilgal to Mizpah judging Israel and the various different places sort of like a circuit ministry just moving around and ministering in one location and then moving on to another territory no doubt giving the people the word of God helping uh, answer uh, questions they had about the Lord and the word of God settling disputes sort of helping to be an advocate uh, as a human representative of the Lord among the people to help them discern God's will and matters for their family and in the communities things that would arise and it tells us at the end of chapter 7 but he always returned back to Rama, which was his home territory and to be there no doubt with his family uh, but as well it tells us that that was important to Samuel because that was where he had built an altar to the Lord that was where his personal place of worship was himself and no doubt the reason why Samuel could be effective spiritually in Bethel in Gilgal in Mizpah was because he had a personal altar there that was a part of his private and personal home life That was the thing that kept him anchored and that no doubt was the place whereby as he received from the Lord, as he had a life of personal worship himself, it was out of the overflow of that that his life was first altered, no pun intended, that he then was able to really go out and have an impact spiritually to be able to have any effect to provide a a altering effect upon the lives of God's people to help them out of what he received in his personal worship and time of communion being with the Lord listening to the Lord himself hearing from God and then going out as God's vessel of honor fit and ready for the master's use now as we come to chapter 8 at this point in time really there's been a considerable gap of time that's sort of it seems transpired or lapsed or elapsed between chapter 7 and chapter 8 because as we come to chapter 8 it seems that the Bible's trying to indicate that Samuel the uh, the prophet of God this last judge of Israel is sort of now transitioning at this point in his ministry it tells us he's an older man we can't be dogmatic exactly how many years have passed but it seems a, a gap of time has elapsed 
And as we come to chapter 8 now, and we'll specifically see in chapter 8, 9, and 10, really a historical transition happens now in the nation of Israel. We move from the time period of the judges into the time of the kings. Uh, and as we move into the time of the kings, that will take us throughout First and Second Samuel, as well through the time of First and Second Kings and Chronicles, where now it seems things transition for the people of Israel and they actually end up having a king reigning over them. And we'll see that begin to happen in our chapter together this evening. So look with me in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass... When Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of the firstborn son was Joel, which means Yahweh or Jehovah is my God. The name of his second son, Abijah, which means God is my father. So certainly no doubt this father had a a, a aspiration that his sons would walk in the ways of the Lord, that they would follow God. He gave them names to identify what his heart was for them, that they would know God personally, that Yahweh would be their God, that they would realize that Yahweh God was their father even before their earthly father to a greater degree. And it says, they then were judges serving particularly in the area of Beersheba. So what the Bible indicates is Samuel, it seems, as he's aging now, begins to realize that he needs to prepare, it seems, for a time of transition. And noticing that he himself is getting older, perhaps just, again, physically, he's winding down. He's realizing the ability to make these circuit journeys year by year to Bethel and to Gilgal and to Mizpah and to rotate around. Perhaps he's starting to realize he's slowing down. He doesn't have the stamina that he once did to do some of the things he did before, that he's limited in his capacities in some ways and, and recognizing that it's important as well to so many times the Psalms speak to us about speaking the praises of the Lord to the next generation that that like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 there where he says to him Timothy the things that you've learned from me you commit these things to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also and this this idea scripturally that we are accountable to transmit truth and the things of God to the next generation that there's a transmission that is supposed to happen and we all have a stewardship to some extent to participate in that to make sure that we what we have learned and from those who've poured into us discipled us invested in us that we realize that we are now to take those things that we've learned and to look for other individuals who we can then invest in it's interesting that he particularly in second timothy 2 tells timothy timothy look for other faithful men who will then be able to be faithful in teaching others. Again, that's the the only criteria that the Holy Spirit kind of brings to the forefront there of, uh, of who to look for to invest in, those who would be faithful with the things of God and the truths of God. They don't necessarily have to be talented or uh, you know, incredibly charismatic, or but, but can they be loyal? Can they be loyal in their love to the Lord, faithful to the things of God, with integrity holding on to the word of God and the ways of God to preserve those things and transmit them to those who need them in the next generation? And here it seems that Samuel's recognizing that there is a need of it. It's a time of transition and and those times come. 
Those times come in ministry when God begins to indicate there's a need of transmission, whether his servant is growing older and needs to maybe move on uh, because of age, or uh, I certainly myself firsthand have been a part of you know, an experience where after pastoring one church for 13 years, the Lord for his purposes began to bring about a process of, of transition and to make it evident that that's what he wanted for his purposes. And, and Samuel's realizing a time of transition is coming and it seems here from verses 1 and 2 that he then turns to his own sons to entrust this responsibility to them. Now, we don't see here in the Bible any indication that God is the one who actually called his biological sons to be the ones to transition and take over this role of ministry or to be judges in the same manner that their father was a judge. We don't see any indication here of that this was something God chose them for or called them to. And it's not to say that the Lord cannot do that. Uh, at times that's the case. But we have to recognize that just because the son may be the best one per se, let's for say for example, to uh, take over dad's business... Uh, it's not the same thing with God's business because God's business is sacred uh, and it's supernatural and it's something where God ordains and sets aside individuals and the Bible tells us in Hebrews, no man takes this honor unto himself in regards to the things of the offices of uh, the, the work of the Lord and, and ministry and these important things that are sacred and supernatural and spiritual that there's a call that's to be attached to that and it seems to be more of here of a natural decision of Samuel of maybe just what appeared best uh, my sons are familiar with the ministry because they were raised among the ministry. This is what dad did. Maybe they even, who knows, maybe the boys on occasion would go with him on his circuit once in a while and he'd take along young Abijah. Come on, I'm going to go on the circuit, son. And, and he would perhaps recognize, well, my sons are familiar with this and it seems natural, it seems comfortable, but just because things seem good or look good or feel natural or would just be the easiest or most comfortable fit, we need to realize that we need to truly seek the Lord and make sure what the Lord wants and ultimately look to God. What have you chosen? Who have you selected? What would be your solution to this situation? And not just what seems best or looks good on paper or would be easy or natural in the uh, everyday affairs of life when it comes to the things of the Lord and particularly his work and his service. And uh, it seems very clear, as we'll see from the next verse, that likely these young men were probably not called to this. Uh, they perhaps very clearly were therefore not prepared for this. They weren't ready to handle this. And because they were entrusted with something maybe that they were not called to, they weren't prepared for it. Uh, they weren't properly ready to handle it. They don't do a very good job with the role and the responsibility, which causes negative effects. And it just becomes something that triggers stumbling and unhealthy things to happen. So again, just another good reminder. We, we really want to make sure, and I think this chapter kind of upholds this principle throughout it that we need to be the individuals who are humble enough to realize, Lord, we don't want to choose for ourselves. Please choose for us. 
Lord, you choose because you know things that we don't about this situation. You know things that we don't about individuals. You know things that we don't about the future and, and what's going to unfold. And, and so the wise individual, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done in the sense that, Lord, to the point, I don't want my will. I want your will. Your wise, you choose. And it seems here perhaps that didn't happen. Again, Deuteronomy 16 tells us the role of judges. Let me just remind you. Deuteronomy 16 says the role of judges was to serve the people with just judgment. The idea is fair, equitable judgment. And it says this, because it's important to verse 3, that the judges were not to pervert justice. They weren't to show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. So those who provided leadership in this role serving as judges were to be men of character. They were to be those who recognized that they were to honor God above honoring men or being self-seeking. They were to be selfless and not self-serving. These were the requirements, the uh, conditions of what it meant to serve as a judge. Well, look at verse 3. Clearly, these individuals the sons of samuel uh, they do nothing along the lines of what the word of god says a judge was supposed to do verse 3 tells us but his sons did not walk in his ways that is the ways of samuel who was a godly man and served the lord faithfully in his calling but what did they do verse 3 they turned aside from their father's ways tragedy that always breaks the heart of a father after notice dishonest gain violation of Deuteronomy 16 for a judge it says and they took bribes violation of Deuteronomy 16 specifically of what a judge was not to do and they perverted justice indication of what Deuteronomy 16 said that if they're not the right individuals and they disobey the word of God this is what they would do and we see here from verse 3 that sadly, though these two young men, I mean, had a godly father who presented them a wonderful example. Uh, Samuel was a, a, a spiritual giant in many ways in his generation. He served the Lord faithfully. This is a man who loved the Lord. He listened to God. He lived out his life faithfully to the Lord, upholding the word of God, speaking the word of God prophetically to those around him giving his life to serving the Lord. But yet we read here in verse 3 that these two sons who were exposed to that, their whole lives growing up with a good and godly father, it says here that they did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside. Very clear indication. What did they do? They exercised their free will. They chose by their own free will to live differently than the godly pattern their father had raised them in, showed them, exposed them to, given them a great example to walk in, and they chose instead to turn aside from that, the Bible says, to live in selfish and sinful ways. They lacked moral integrity. It says here that instead of doing what they were supposed to, they turned aside after dishonest gain. They were taking bribes from people, looking to profit off of the position and enrich themselves financially. And as a result of being those who were looking for dishonest gain and taking bribes, they would pervert justice. They wouldn't uphold what was righteous or what was proper, but instead they were willing to compromise according to whatever was best for their own self-interests. 
and they were perverting the ways of God and, and motivated by what they could get for themselves from the people. And, and I think as we look at the sons of Samuel here, it's, it's good to search our own hearts to ask, are we ever tempted to and perhaps do we ever give into perhaps compromising in some subtle way because it brings about some personal gain for us. This is what these sons were guilty of. It says they were after dishonest gain. They took bribes. And as a result of that, they perverted justice. The point being is what they were guilty of in a very glaring way in their ministry is that they were individuals who, if it benefited them personally, they'd compromise. And in a sense, they lived and walked out their lives in that way. If somehow this will benefit me, if somehow I can get something out of this that I want for my flesh or my desire, then I'll pervert justice. I'll, I'll compromise. I'll make a concession. And we all have to be careful of this. We may not be judges in the land. We may not be having the level of responsibility they did. But in all of our lives... Listen, in all of our lives, there are things that come down the pike into our lives that we have to evaluate and we have to make judgments about. It's a part of life. Part of life is making judgments all the time. What's the biggest thing? You know, as we're raising our children, we're trying to teach them how to make good judgments, how to make decisions, to have stewardship with this thing called choice. <laughs> because choices have a powerful impact upon our experiences and our circumstances and consequences. So we try and invest how to make good judgments. And we're all to some extent making judgments and, and dealing with people and interacting with situations in life. And we have to be careful because there will always be a temptation at times to see a situation that presents itself to us and we have to weigh out, okay, if I make that decision, that will benefit me because I can somehow get to where I want or get what I want or get what I'm desiring, but it comes with it, but you're going to need to have to pervert what's right a little bit. You're going to have to twist something. You're going to have to make a concession or make a subtle compromise. It may not be a huge compromise, but you're going to have to make some compromise to do it. And we have to be the individuals who have enough integrity and confidence in God to say, Lord, I will not compromise to get something that I'm after. Because the Bible that I read says that no good thing does God withhold from those who seek Him. It says as well later in the Psalm, somewhere around Psalm 80 or, or so, it says there that no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly, which means they don't compromise. They walk uprightly. Lord, I will not compromise. I will walk uprightly and I will honor You and, and Lord, I will trust, therefore, whatever you allow me to gain or not gain, that's your prerogative. But I won't fall prey to manipulating somehow for my benefit. And here, just this sad picture of his sons, this godly man. Now, I think we need to be very careful. Here's another example in the Bible of a very godly man, a very you know, influential man spiritually, and yet his two sons don't walk in the ways of the Lord. In fact, not only, not only not walk in the ways of the Lord, they become pretty crooked. 
I mean, they're manipulating and abusing their positions of ministry and authority and they become corrupt and they're money hungry and they become some pretty crooked individuals here. And I'm sure this broke Samuel's heart as he was the one who had entrusted them with this role. Maybe this perhaps was part of one of the errors that he did make in his life. Certainly no man is flawless. And certainly one of his errors is that he didn't, it seems, remove them from these positions. Even if they became that way, he should have stepped in, whether they were his sons or not, and removed them from this position. Uh, when they began to practice these things, he should have cared more about honoring the Lord, it seems, and instead of honoring that family dynamic. And sometimes that's a hard time when you're forced to choose between honoring the Lord or having tension in a family relationship. That's a tough place to be. But I think we need to be careful here that we don't automatically look at Samuel and think, oh, well, look at the way his kids turned out. I mean, he, he must have been dysfunctional somehow. And, and, and somehow we shift the blame automatically to Samuel that he failed in some way as a father or as a parent because his kids didn't walk in the ways of the Lord or they became reprobates rather than living in a healthy relationship with God and being like their parents who were God. I think we need to be careful. The Bible says here, they did not walk in his ways. It wasn't as if Samuel, well, he was just a hypocrite. That's what it was. No, the Bible says they did not walk in his ways. His ways were right. He wasn't living like a hypocrite at home. I think we need to be careful. We are too quick so often to see maybe children of, of parents who maybe the children don't walk in the ways of the Lord and, and we are quick to want to put blame and pin blame somehow upon the oh, well, They must have failed somehow as parents. They didn't do their job right. They didn't, and that's why they have a prodigal. That's why I have a child that's rebellious. No, it says here, they turned aside. They turned aside. Their father showed them the way of the Lord. They didn't walk in their father's ways. They just exercised their free will and turned aside. And the Bible is very clear. Again, keep in mind, uh, the first prodigals that ever showed up were in the Garden of Eden. God showed Adam and Eve the way of the Lord. <laughs> he walked with them. In the, and what did they do? They turned aside from their father. They turned aside from God. They exercised their free will. They did not walk in that way. Not every rebellious kid indicates a failure of godly parenting. And we need to be careful when parents are dealing with this kind of thing. It's grievous and heartbreaking enough. Certainly there can be times and parents are maybe aware yeah, I, I, you know, erred in this way, but we need to be very, very careful that we're not harsh and condemning, but we realize here's an example of a godly man but had children uh, who unfortunately did not walk in his ways. It's a testament to their will to choose freely and to bear their own accountability for their personal actions and decisions here. And verse 4 says that in light of this failure with the sons turning away, the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, your sons aren't like you, Samuel. It was great when you were, but your sons, they're not walking in your ways. Now make us a king to judge like all the nations. So notice what happens. A legitimate problem is addressed here. There was a lack of strong spiritual leadership at this point in time. Samuel is beginning to fade. He's aging. He's getting older. He was a good and godly influence. And so they bring a legitimate problem to Samuel. They say, look, Samuel, you're getting older. Uh, you recognize that because you gave your sons this position when you realized you were getting older and, and they're not walking in your ways. 
And there's going to be a vacuum of godly leadership and spiritual influence that you once provided. And so this is something that was a legitimate need and problem they bring to his attention. But notice their solution was to do what? Was to look to the way of the world as the resolve for the problem and situation that they were facing. They say, here's the problem and we also brought you the solution. Here's the solution to the problem they propose. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations, like the world does, they're saying. And basically they come to Samuel and say, everyone else, that in all the other nations, they have a centralized government. And they have a royal family. And so you kind of know what you're going to get and the children are groomed. And so they basically ask for a monarchy to lead and defend them nationally. If that's, if that's what they're all doing, the other nations are doing this. It seems to be working for them. So if it seems to be working for them, then that model seems to be working for the world. Uh, that's probably what we should implement. It seems to work in the world. It works for the other nations. And their idea is inspired from what they observed in the world around them. That's where they got their idea. We should adopt that method or adopt that pattern as the solution for our specific problem that we're dealing with here. And can I just say that is always a really bad approach for God's people to find solutions even to legitimate problems. We need to be careful as God's people that we do not look to the world for our solutions to things, to situations, that we don't allow how the world handles situations to be our guide for how we're going to resolve a situation, that we're going to adopt that pattern or adopt that model. Well, well this is what the world does. It seems to work in the world. And this is how they handle things. As believers, it is dangerous for us to look to the world and how it operates as a model for solving our problems or finding solutions to whatever it may be that we are facing. It's not healthy to embrace the world's ideas and patterns. And I'll tell you why. Remember, the world's not walking in fellowship with God. The world's living in rebellion to God. The world's not seeking to embrace and follow the ways of the Lord. So instead of looking to the world, we should be looking to the Lord himself. Lord, we have a legitimate problem here. Lord, we genuinely need a solution for this situation. You know, in the church or in our family or, or in our life. Lord, this is a legitimate situation. We need a solution. But Lord, would you show us what the solution is? Would you guide us? Would you help us not to embrace just the patterns of the world or look to the ideas of the philosophies of men in the world around us? The truth of the matter is God's people, we're supposed to be unlike the rest of the world. When we're doing it right, there's supposed to be not a likeness to the world, but an unlikeness to the world. That's what makes us distinctively different by design. Because we're following the way of the Lord. He's make us a king. We want a monarch. That's what we need. A, an identifiable, centralized government, a monarch, a king, like all the nations. We don't want to be like the world. We want to be unlike the world. That's what makes us attractive. And that's what makes us stay in the center of the will of the Lord and letting him lead us. Well, verse 6 tells us here, as this goes on, that this thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king 
to judge us. So they come to Samuel. They now make a request as the solution for their problem for a king. And as they say, give us a king, the Bible says it displeased Samuel when they made that request. But understand, this is just fulfilling really, honestly, a 400-year-old somewhat prophecy from Deuteronomy 17 where God knew that one day the people would ask for this. God knew that one day they would not be content with him ruling over them, a theocracy where God ruled over the people, where God was their king and people would be content to live universally in a sense in submission to God and letting God lead them as people individually, then as families corporately and then as a society and a nation overall that if people would let God rule over their lives and listen to the Lord and submit to his authority and be accountable to him that people one day were going to become disinterested in Deuteronomy 17 God said in that day when they ask for a king then this is the criteria so God knew this was ultimately going to come and now we see it coming to pass 400 years later it started happening in the in the days of Gideon if you remember from our study in Judges chapter 8 it tells us this regarding Gideon, who was a judge. It says the men of Israel came to Gideon and said, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also. They were asking for a monarchy. For you've delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon's response, you remember it? He said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Again, even prior to this time, the people were already yearning for a human ruler, for some man to identify with, not content with letting God rule over them. And Gideon said, I don't want to rule over you. The Lord should rule over you. Because that is the ideal of what people need. Humanity needs the rulership of God over their lives. That he would be our authority in our lives. That we'd be accountable to him and let him reign over our lives. So this is a difficult thing. Again, think of it as they lived among the other nations. It was hard being a theocracy, letting God rule over them. Because you can picture people from the other nations as they had their king. And the throne of their king and their centralizing and, and talking to the people. So, so who's your king? Well, God's our king. Well, where's your king? Well, where is he? We don't see him. Well... Well, I mean, he's invisible. We have a king, but he's invisible. And, and you can see how the, the natural tendency that this doesn't feel logical. It doesn't seem practical. And, and the pressure and the temptation to want to sort of concede and, and adopt the ways of the world, maybe for acceptance or feeling that they were missing something. Again, the Bible tells us that we are to live by faith and not by sight. We're not to look at how the world does things. We're to look to God himself and serve the one who is unseen, knowing he's involved, that he's present, that he was ruling and protecting the people for many, many years. And it worked fine. It worked fine. But now they're yearning for a king. Well, it says that when they asked, verse six, that this displeased Samuel. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now it's understandable why this would displease Samuel. He's saddened by this. He feels disappointed that the people are asking for this. He didn't like their idea. He's disheartened by it. Certainly he disagrees with it. But notice he does not immediately react to what they do. He doesn't automatically just start refuting them with all the reasons why it wouldn't be good to have a king and what's the matter with you people and what are you thinking and what's your train of thought and you rebel. He doesn't even go there. He's displeased by what he hears and what he experiences, but he doesn't just react by his feelings personally, though they were legitimate. They were legitimate feelings to feel displeased. 
They were asking for something that he knew didn't quite please the Lord, but though they were doing that and he felt displeased, what does he do? Because it's a great pattern. It says he's displeased about what was happening. So he goes and he talks to the Lord about it and he praises the Lord. And can I just say that is a really healthy and wise pattern exhibited there by Samuel in the Bible. That is a great example. He wisely turns to God in prayer before he responds to the people that have brought displeasure and disappointment. And before he answers a word, before he says anything, he goes to God to process his struggle. Listen, there are going to be times, maybe I'm going to give you a secret you've never known about, where things are going to happen that displease you. People are going to displease you. Situations are going to displease you. Circumstances are going to come about that are going to leave you disillusioned, you know, disheartened, dis- and, and you're going to feel very displeased. And when you feel very displeased, there's, there's a natural tendency, the feelings that are attached to want to just react and to just begin to say the reasons why you're displeased. And, wh- and you may be legitimately right, but perhaps the proper thing first is before you go talking to people, to step back and to talk to God first and to let God help you process that struggle that you're feeling and, and Lord, how would you want me to process this? What, what would you have me say? Let, and Lord, you tell me what to say. How am I to respond? What am I to do with this, Lord? I, I want to respond rightly in handling this. So he prays, very wise example. And look, the Lord speaks to him, verse seven, and says to him, Samuel, heed the voice of the people. Now, let me just say, I, don't, I bet you that's not what Samuel was expecting. God says, give them what they want. And I'm sure if Samuel's anything like you or me in his natural mind, he's thinking, no, there's no way this is wrong. And it's a good thing he prayed because he prayed and God actually probably told him, I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, perhaps that God told him to do what he didn't think God was going to tell him to do. It might have been the exact opposite or the last thing he would ever thought God told him. Do what they want. Give them a king. So it was wise that he prayed, heed the voice of the people in what they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me and served other gods. He says, Samuel, now they're just doing it to you also. So uh, Samuel here, he feels disappointed. And it seems what's happening is that he's, he's kind of internalizing it. And he's taking it personal because he's the Lord's representative and the servant of the Lord who spoke forth the word of God to the people. And and now because of that, he's feeling a sense of the rejection that the people are casting towards God. It's a rejection of God. But as the Lord's servant, as a representative of the Lord, speaking for God and representing the Lord, he's now taking it personal. And God says, look, Samuel, you're just getting a small taste of what my regular experience has been for centuries with these people. Ever since the days of Egypt, he says, they've been casting off my rulership over them and forsaking me and serving other gods. And and, and they're now doing the same in your ministry now as one of my servants. But he says, Samuel, verse seven, there he says, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They don't want me to reign over them. 
And, and you're just experiencing a measure of this as my representative. And look, as the Lord's servants, if we're going to faithfully speak the word of the Lord and represent our Lord, we need to realize there are going to be occasions if we're going to walk in fellowship with him and do his work and speak on his behalf and represent him properly, there are going to be times where we're going to experience rejection. It's par for the course. And if people reject the Lord himself, Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. We need to realize this is part of the process. It's part of what we signed up for. What we need to do is be wise enough and spiritually discerning enough to realize that people are not rejecting me and you personally. And that we don't internalize it and respond wrongly or become overly beaten up or discouraged or even angry and responsive. And then we just misrepresent the Lord because we take it too personal in such a way we feel persecuted or get angry or, or try and become defensive. We, we need to learn how to face a measure of rejection. It's a part of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. They rejected Jesus. If they rejected Jesus, they're going to represent or reject his representatives as well. So he says, if they haven't rejected you, Samuel, don't, don't misinterpret. They've rejected me that I should not reign over them. And please take note of the end of verse 7 there, because that, let me just say, I think is a picture of humanity's greatest problem. That statement is the picture of the greatest problem of humanity. They have rejected me, God says, that I should not reign over them. People's rejection of God and God's rulership over their lives is the plague of humanity. That's the problem. In a sense, there's a, a little throne on the heart of every human being. And from day one, God is seeking to work in a way where he would have rulership upon the throne of our hearts. And whether we're reigning on the throne or letting something, and, and there's this constant battle and what brings about so many problems in the lives of individuals, it really becomes down, uh, boiled down to, to an issue of who's reigning on the throne of your heart. And listen, there's a lot of ways that we kind of reign on the throne of our own heart where we, it, to some sense, it almost becomes a thing of we just have to be in control. I, I need to be in control. I just, I, I can't think about, listen, you need to have faith to not need to be in control. Trust God. You don't need to be in control. Just let God be in control. And you will find a peace of God that floods over your soul in such a way. And the wonderful thing is this, I assure you, he'll do a much better job as a king over your life than you will. You're never going to outdo him. You're never going to make better decisions and rule your life in a better way than God would rule your life. And all of our society, you know, this is the plague of so much, and this was the problem of God's people. He says, they're my people, but yet they've rejected me and won't let me reign over them. Now, therefore, verse 9, he says, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of a king who will reign over them. So God says, Samuel, this is what they want. Give them what they desire. But he says to them, what I'm going to tell you to do, Samuel, and we'll see as we read the last sort of section of the chapter here, collectively, he's going to say, if they're going to do this, you forewarn them that they walk into it with their eyes wide open. That if that's what they want, they want their way and they want a king and they want a centralized government, then you need to tell them if they want a monarchy and they want to throw off a theocracy of God ruling over them, then he says, let them know what they're really asking for. Let them know, forewarn them. They walk into it 
No questions. God says, give them what they request, though it's not my preference or God's ideal. But the people didn't want to learn from instruction. So what's God doing? God's saying, well, they don't want to listen to instruction. They don't want me to reign over them. So I guess they're going to have to learn via experience. Give them what they want. And then as they begin to experience what it's like, the outcome of getting what they desire and want, they will learn via experience because they refuse to learn via instruction. And sometimes that's what has to happen. God sometimes will give over a person to what they want. And God says, if you won't listen to instruction, then I'll have to let you learn through experience. And consequences and experiences can be great, powerful teachers. We can't argue against those. Well, Samuel then, it says, told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And take notice how of the constant reference the king will take, take, take. Look as we just read through it together. He says, this will be the behavior, verse 11, of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots, for his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots and he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Sounds like big government already, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Happened quick. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons and war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be his perfumers and his cooks and his bakers because he's going to have a big staff, big government. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards. Now, he doesn't just want a portion of your vineyards. Government wants the best. (laughs) They don't want just some. They want the best. This is man-made government And, and giving them what they wanted. He'll take the best of your vineyards, the best of your olive groves and give them to his servants because he's got to supply his staff. He will take a tenth of your grain, that's called taxation, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants and your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants because your king whom you have, look at God says, who you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord then will not hear you in that day. They would cry out because of what they had chosen. So uh, basically God says, let them know this is what they'll experience. He will take, take, take. The point there simply is the government you're asking for, God saying, it will come with a price. And the price tag specifically, you could say, really, is God says your finances and your freedom will suffer. That's what would happen as the human government was then established in this way as they wanted a certain kind of king and a pattern themselves after the world and the nations. God said he's going to take and not just take, he's going to take your best. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your sons and daughters and put you to his work. And you're going to have to give efforts to support and serve government rather than government serving you the way that you're wanting it, God says. And so here God's just letting them know if this is what you want, he says, verse 18, and what's going to happen then is after you get what you asked, you're going to cry out in that day because you're a king who you chose for yourselves, he says, and the Lord won't hear you. In other words, God will allow them to just let the experience of that affect them. God didn't want them to, in many ways, at times experience some of their struggles. God would give people less than his ideal, but he would do it in such a way to to try and help them to learn throughout history on occasion. Verse 19, look what it says. Though God warned them, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, 
but we will have a king over us. That's called determination. <laughs> they want their way. They, they, they know that we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Hold on a minute. Hasn't God been fighting their battles for them? I think God's done a really good job helping them fight their battles throughout history. But now they're saying, no, we need a visible king and, and we want what, someone we can see and that we can put our confidence in and that we can focus on. And, and really, in essence, what they're saying, if you boil it down, is they're saying, we hear what you're saying, but we don't want to listen to what God's saying because our idea is better than God's. So give us a king. Nevertheless, they would not heed the warning, the counsel, the godly counsel of Samuel. And they said they refused that. They don't want to obey his voice, which was the voice of the Lord, technically. And they said, no, give us our way. In verse 21, Samuel heard all the words of the people and repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And Samuel, or the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. So what does God do? God gives them what they want. God allows them to have their own preference and choice over what God would have had for them specifically and in his will and his timing. And God will sometimes, as I said, allow this to happen, but it always results in unpleasant experiences. Let me read to you from Psalm 81. Please listen to this because it's such wonderful truth of what can happen in all of our lives. It says, There shall be no foreign God among you, God says, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people, God says, would not listen or heed my voice. Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Then God says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would then subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. And then at the end of the psalm, he says this, He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat, with the honey from the rock. And God says, And I would have satisfied you. And let me just quickly say, Do you hear what God's saying? Oh, if my people would have listened to me. I gave them over to their own ways. But God says, I would have. I don't ever want God to say, I would have done it so much better. If you would have just let me have my way and choose for you and, and just submitted to me and let me be in charge in your life, God says, I would have. But instead you settled for less, God's saying. You settled for much more struggle and, and you, you forsook, he says, the finest, the best. Because God always has the best for us. I would have, God says. Now let me say this as well in regards to the king situation. That king... We read through the list, God says, the first human king. Of course, we know it's Saul. What was the repeater refrain? He will take, 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 take. Do you know what's the difference about Jesus? Jesus is not a taking king. Jesus is a giving king. Jesus gives, gives, gives. Jesus himself said of his own life, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the difference of King Jesus. King Jesus isn't looking to take, take, take. Jesus came to give, give, give. He poured out his life. He gave his best for us, serving us, a humble king, a servant king, and a king who provided the greatest thing, which the sacrifice of his own life gives us forgiveness of sins and the redemption of our souls, which is so important. Do you know why? Because sometimes, if you boil down the bottom line of what a lot of our sinful and foolish mistakes have been, really, like this situation, we just chose to have our way instead of having God's way. We call it sin. But really, sin is just saying, I want my way. How I feel right now, what I desire right now, what I want. And the wonderful thing is, Jesus paid for all of that. As a king, he humbled himself and died in our place so that we could be forgiven from those mistakes. What a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for